Chapter 1, Part 1 of The Eventful History of the Mutiny and Piratical Seizure of HMS Bounty, Its Cause and Consequences. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Graham Dunlop the Eventful History of the Mutiny and Piratical Seizure of HMS Bounty by Sir John Barrow Chapter 1, Part 1 Otaheite The gentle island and the genial soil, The friendly hearts, the feasts without a toil, The courteous manners but from nature caught, The wealth unhoarded and the love unbought, The bread-tree which without the ploughshare yields, the unreaped harvest of unfurrowed fields, and bakes its unadulterated loaves, without a furnace in unpurchased groves, and flings off famine from its fertile breast, a priceless market for the gathering guest. These, etc. Byron the reign of George III will be distinguished in history by the great extension and improvement which geographical knowledge received under the immediate auspices of this sovereign. At a very early period, after his accession to the throne of these realms, expedition of discovery were undertaken, not, as Dr. Hawkesworth observes, with a view to the acquisition of treasure or the extent of dominion, but for the improvement of commerce and the increase and diffusion of knowledge. This excellent monarch was himself no mean proficient in the science of geography, and it may be doubted if any one of his subjects, at the period alluded to, was in possession of so extensive or so well arranged a cabinet of maps and charts as his was, or who understood their merits or their defects so well as he did. The first expeditions that were sent forth after the conclusion of the war were those of Byron, Wallace, and Carteret. In the instructions to the first of these commanders it is said, There is reason to believe that lands and islands of great extent, hitherto unvisited by any European power, may be found in the Atlantic Ocean, between the Cape of Good Hope and the Magellanic Strait, within the latitudes convenient for navigation and in climates adapted to the produce of commodities useful in commerce it could not require much knowledge or consideration to be assured that between the cape and the strait climates producing commodities useful in commerce with the exception of whales and seals were likely to be found the fact was that among the real objects of this and other subsequent voyages there was one which had engaged the attention of certain philosophers from the time of the spanish navigator quiros this able navigator had maintained that a terra australis incognita must necessarily exist somewhere in the high latitudes of the southern hemisphere to counterbalance the great masses of land in those of the northern one and thus maintain a just equipoise of the globe While these expeditions were in progress, the Royal Society in 1768 addressed an application to the King, praying him to appoint a ship of war to convey to the South Seas Mr. Alexander Dalrymple, who had adopted the opinion of Quiros, and certain others, for the main purpose, however, 
of observing the transit of Venus over the Sun's disk, which was to happen in the year 1769. By the King's command, a bark of 370 tons was taken up by the Admiralty to perform this service, but, as Mr. Dalrymple was a civilian, he could not be entrusted with the command of the ship, and on that account declined going in her. The command was therefore conferred on Lieutenant James Cook, an officer of undoubted ability and well-versed in astronomy and the theory and practice of navigation, with whom the Royal Society associated Mr. Charles Green, who had long been assistant to Dr. Bradley, the Astronomer Royal, to aid him in the observation of the transit. Mr. Banks, a private gentleman of good fortune, who afterwards became the valuable and distinguished president of the Royal Society, and Dr. Solander, a Swedish gentleman of great acquirements, particularly in natural history, accompanied Lieutenant Cook on this interesting voyage. The islands of Marquesas de Mendoza, or those of Rotterdam or Amsterdam, were proposed by the Royal Society as proper places for making the observation. While fitting out, however, Captain Wallace returned from his expedition and strongly recommended as most suitable for the purpose Port Royal Harbour on an island he had discovered to which he had given the name of King George's Island and which has since been known by its native name Otahiti or Tahiti. End note 1 this lovely island is most intimately connected with the mutiny which took place on board the Bounty, and with the fate of the mutineers and their innocent offspring. Its many seducing temptations have been urged as one, if not the main cause of the mutiny, which was supposed, at least by the commander of that ship, to have been excited by young hearts which languished for some sunny isle, where summer years and summer women smile, Men without country, who too long estranged, had found no native home, or found it changed, and half uncivilized preferred the cave of some soft savage to the uncertain wave. It may be proper, therefore, as introductory to the present narrative, to give a general description of the rich and spontaneous gifts which nature has lavished on this once happy island, of the simple and ingenuous manners of its natives, and of those allurements which were supposed, erroneously however, to have occasioned the unfortunate catastrophe alluded to, to glance at the nymph's seducements and the magic bower, as they existed at the period of the first intercourse between the Otahitans and the crews of those ships which carried to their shores in succession Wallace, Bougainville, and Cook. The first communication which Wallace had with these people was, unfortunately, of a hostile nature. Having approached with his ship close to the shore, the usual symbol of peace and friendship, a branch of the plantain tree, was held up by a native in one of the numerous canoes that surrounded the ship. Great numbers, on being invited, crowded on board the stranger ship. But one of them, being butted on the haunches by a goat, and turning hastily round, perceived it rearing on its hind legs ready to repeat the blow, and was so terrified at the appearance of this strange animal, so different from any he'd ever seen, that, 
in the moment of terror, he jumped overboard, and all the rest followed his example with the utmost precipitation. This little incident, however, produced no mischief. But as the boats were sounding in the bay, and several canoes crowding round them, Wallace suspected the islanders had a design to attack them, and on this mere suspicion, ordered the boats by signal to come on board, and at the same time, he says, to intimidate the Indians, I fired a nine-pounder over their heads. This, as might have been imagined, startled the islanders, but did not prevent them from attempting immediately to cut off the cutter as she was standing towards the ship. Several stones were thrown into this boat, on which the commanding officer fired a musket loaded with buckshot at the man who threw the first stone and wounded him in the shoulder. Finding no good anchorage at this place, the ship proceeded to another part of the island where, on one of the boats being assailed by the Indians in two or three canoes, with their clubs and paddles in their hands, our people, says the commander, being much pressed, were obliged to fire, by which one of the assailants was killed and another much wounded. This unlucky rencontre did not, however, prevent, as soon as the ship was moored, a great number of canoes from coming off the next morning, with hogs, fowls, and fruit. A brisk traffic soon commenced, our people exchanging knives, nails, and trinkets for more substantial articles of food, of which they were in want. Among the canoes that came out last were some double ones of very large size, with twelve or fifteen stout men in each, and it was observed that they had little on board except a quantity of round pebble stones. Other canoes came off along with them, having only women on board, and while these females were assiduously practising their allurements, by attitudes that could not be misunderstood, with the view, as it would seem, to distract the attention of the crew, the large double canoes closed round the ship, and as these advanced, some of the men began singing, some blowing conches, and others playing on flutes. One of them, with a person sitting under a canopy, approached the ship so close as to allow this person to hand up a bunch of red and yellow feathers, making signs it was for the captain. He then put off to a little distance, and on holding up the branch of a coconut tree, there was a universal shout from all the canoes, which at the same moment moved towards the ship, and a shower of stones was poured into her on every side. The guard was now ordered to fire, and two of the quarter-deck guns loaded with small shot were fired among them at the same time, which created great terror and confusion, and caused them to retreat to a short distance. In a few minutes, however, they renewed the attack, the great guns were now ordered to be discharged among them and also into a mass of canoes that were putting off from the shore. It is stated that at this time there could not be less than 300 canoes about the ship, having on board at least 2,000 men. Again they dispersed, but having soon collected into something like order, they hoisted white streamers and pulled towards the ship's stern, when they again began to throw stones with great force and dexterity by the help of slings, each of the stones weighing about two pounds, 
and many of them wounded the people on board. At length a shot hit the canoe that apparently had the chief on board and cut it asunder. This was no sooner observed by the rest than they all dispersed in such haste that in half an hour there was not a single canoe to be seen, and all the people who had crowded the shore fled over the hills with the utmost precipitation. What was to happen on the following day was matter of conjecture, but the point was soon decided. The white man landed, need the rest be told, the new world stretched its dusk hand to the old. Lieutenant Furneaux, on the next morning, landed, without opposition, close to a fine river that fell into the bay, stuck up a staff on which was hoisted a pendant, turned a turf, and by this process took possession of the island in the name of His Majesty, and called it King George the Third's Island. Just as he was embarking, an old man, to whom the lieutenant had given a few trifles, brought some green boughs, which he threw down at the foot of the staff, then retiring, brought about a dozen of his countrymen, who approached the staff in a supplicating posture, then retired and brought two live hogs, which they laid down at the foot of the staff, and then began to dance. After this ceremony the hogs were put into a canoe, and the old man carried them on board, handing up several green plantain leaves, and uttering a sentence on the delivery of each. Some presents were offered him in return, but he would accept of none. Concluding that peace was now established, and that no further attack would be made, the boats were sent on shore the following day to get water. While the casks were filling, several natives were perceived coming from behind the hills and through the woods, and at the same time a multitude of canoes from behind a projecting point of the bay. As these were discovered to be laden with stones and were making towards the ship, it was concluded their intention was to try their fortune in a second grand attack. As to shorten the contest would certainly lessen the mischief, I determined, says Captain Wallace, to make this action decisive, and put an end to hostilities at once. Accordingly, a tremendous fire was opened at once on all groups of the canoes, which had the effect of immediately dispersing them. The fire was then directed into the wood, to drive out the islanders, who had assembled in large numbers, on which they all fled to the hill, where the women and children had seated themselves. Here they collected to the amount of several thousands, imagining themselves at that distance to be perfectly safe. The captain, however, ordered four shot to be fired over them, but two of the balls, having fallen close to a tree where a number of them were sitting, they were so struck with terror and consternation that in less than two minutes not a creature was to be seen. The coast being cleared, the boats were manned and armed, and all the carpenters with their axes were sent on shore, with directions to destroy every canoe they could find, and we are told this service was effectually performed, and that more than fifty canoes, many of which were sixty feet long and three broad, and lashed together, were cut to pieces. This act of severity must have been cruelly felt by these poor people, 
who, without iron or any kind of tools, but such as stones, shells, teeth and bones supplied them with, must have spent months and probably years in the construction of one of these extraordinary double boats. Such was the inauspicious commencement of our acquaintance with the natives of Otaheite. Their determined hostility and perseverance in an unequal combat could only have arisen from one of two motives, either from an opinion that a ship of such magnitude as they had never before beheld could only be come to their coast to take their country from them, or an irresistible temptation to endeavour, at all hazards, to possess themselves of so valuable a prize. Be that as it may, the dread inspired by the effects of the cannon, and perhaps a conviction of the truth of what had been explained to them, that the strangers wanted only provisions and water, had the effect of allaying all jealousy. For from the day of the last action, the most friendly and uninterrupted intercourse was established, and continued to the day of the dolphin's departure, and provisions of all kinds, hogs, dogs, fruit and vegetables were supplied in the greatest abundance in exchange for pieces of iron, nails and trinkets. As a proof of the readiness of these simple people to forgive injuries, a poor woman accompanied by a young man bearing a branch of the plantain tree, and another man with two hogs, approached the gunner, whom Captain Wallace had appointed to regulate the market, and, looking round on the strangers with great attention, fixing her eyes sometimes on one and sometimes on another, at length burst into tears. It appeared that her husband and three of her sons had been killed in the attack on the ship. While this was under explanation, the poor creature was so affected as to require the support of the two young men, who from their weeping were probably two more of her sons. When somewhat composed, she ordered the two hogs to be delivered to the gunner, and gave him her hand in token of friendship, but would accept nothing in return. End of chapter 1, part 1